Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our uh, call to confession is found today in Acts 11, starting at verse 17. And there Peter says, If therefore God gave them the same gifts as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. In the, the great truth of this passage, and the pastor is going to expound on it a lot more later this morning, um, is that the doors of the church were open to the entire world, Jews and Gentiles. Um, the truth really changed the views of the apostles and early Christians at that it gave them a much larger, new, I'll say liberal concept of the gospel. Um, it taught them, uh, it was breaking down the longstanding prejudice of the Jews. Um, it taught them to look upon all people as their brethren, really, it pressed upon their hearts that the Christian church was founded for the entire world. Um, and that it opened up the same glorious pathway to life wherever man might be found. And so to this truth, we really owe our hopes. Um, we should thank God. And if it's truly impressed upon our minds, and we believe this, that we should be seeking to invite the entire world to partake in this uh, same riches which provision the gospel. So let us come and confess our negligence now. Psalm 96 95, 6, 7, come. Let us Turn back to the book of Acts for our continuing sermon series. Acts chapter 10. Stopped halfway through the story last week. Now we pick it up at Acts 10, verse 23, right in the middle of a verse even. So Peter had seen the vision of the uh, animals let down in the sheet three times. God tells him to go with the men who come, sent from Cornelius. Let's pick up the story at Acts 10, verse 23. Hear God's word. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without question, without objection, excuse me. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, 
Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here, in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, 
John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Here we have the second half of the story of Cornelius. Once again, the focus has shifted to Peter for a few chapters. Remember, it shifts around from different apostles. This book is called the Acts of the Apostles, right? So we have had Peter back in chapter 2, then uh, Philip and Saul of Tarsus, now back to Peter. Uh, last time we focused more on Peter's conversion, how Peter needed to see uncircumcised Gentiles as people to associate with and bring the gospel to. So today we're going to see what happens when the gospel is brought to these Gentiles. God shows his full favor to Gentiles, full favor for foreigners. I made the sermon title just to, to drive the point home. Uh, foreigners, and that's us of course, right? Most of us here are Gentiles. And so there's a, there's, there's a familiarity breeding contempt, not necessarily contempt, just more of a shrug that, that we have to overcome today uh, to realize, wow, even to Gentiles, God is going to give his grace. That, that we just assume that. Let's, let's not assume that today. Let's reimagine uh, the original uh, border crossing here. Uh, for foreigners. So Peter enters Cornelius's house. That's the border crossing. He is, Cornelius is receptive and he's expectant. Uh, again, I'll just walk through uh, verse by verse here uh, a bit. If you can keep your Bibles out, that might be helpful. Uh, verse uh, 24, uh, 25, Cornelius, uh, notice says he's, he's called together his relatives and close friends. Yeah, that's fascinating. He expects something very important to happen and it's an act of faith what he's done. You don't usually invite all of your closest friends to a, to a gathering unless you know what's going to happen and you know it's worth their time and it's a really big deal, right? All of his closest friends he's gathered in his house. Now Cornelius, verse 26, he goes overboard, right? He, he um, bows down and worships Peter. Uh, we're not supposed to do that. When angels appear to people in Scripture, a couple of times they do this, the angel stops them and redirects their worship to God, which, which is something we ought to keep in mind. Peter does the same thing here with Cornelius. I think there's a small lesson here to learn, too, by the way. Peter corrects this quickly, and then he moves on, right? It's, it's correction by example. And maybe I'm reading a bit too much into this, but sometimes this is just a pastoral application. You know, Peter just says, don't do that. And then he quickly focuses everybody on what they should be doing, redirecting their attention to the right place, right? Uh, and I, I guess I'm thinking mainly of parenting here. Sometimes you can, you know, there's a way to come across someone in their sin, and in rejecting their sin, you fall into your own sin, or you so focus on the sin, and you just stay there for a half an hour, for an hour, and that's, that's unhelpful. This usually comes of too much focus on the sin itself instead of showing the way of righteousness. It's like, what am I here for? 
Uh, I'm not here to just think about sin. I, I'm here to, to be doing the right thing. Uh, so that's, that's something that you can think of as a parent. The, the sin of anger arises in you, for example, when you see your children sin. Uh, or friends can do this with each other. You just get so uh, dialed down into the, the wrong thing that the other person did. Galatians 6.1 is important, that you have to restore a sinner with care, lest you too become tempted or, or fall into sin. So Peter corrects Cornelius here, not in a rushed way, but he just moves on to focus on the right thing. Eh, don't do that. Now let's do the right thing. Uh, and that's, that can be a helpful way uh, to parent, uh, to consider uh, how we t- talk to friends when we see them doing the wrong thing. Well, Peter rejects being worshipped. He rejects treating another person like a Gentile dog, too, which is the way Jews would often think of things. Be friendly with everyone, whether they're doing something you like or not, whether they're being godly or sinful. Treat people as image bearers of God. And you have kind of the middle between the two wrong ends of the spectrum there. You don't want to idolize people, and you don't want to uh, hold people in contempt either. So Peter's convinced, verse 28, and Peter is ready. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with anyone, verse 28. But God has shown me not to call anyone common or unclean. So I came, and here I am. That's what Peter says. Remember his vision of the unclean food animals from last week? That was not just about food. This is a critical point. It's not just a reinterpretation of Leviticus 11 and and what what Jews can eat now. It is that, but it's more. It's about Gentile people. That's the whole point of the connection. You you can eat this this food that used to be unclean, and here comes these unclean people to the same house at the same exact moment. You you can associate with those people. You, You don't have to hold them at a distance. So Peter had to make that change before he could convert others. That's the point from last week. So, again, that's worth considering. How are you living in a way that obscures the gospel for the very people that you're trying to witness to? That's the application point there. And that can take some time to work through because it's not very obvious to us. We can't see it very clearly. Remember Peter's confusion, his perplexity, his wondering at the vision last week. Uh, Well, now he speaks with certainty to Cornelius. But it's been a few days he had, he had to get on the same page with God, and that can be a confusing and lengthy process it, it, because we're slow to hear. Peter had to change first for the gospel to go forth. So just to be really blunt today, you have to change now and today in some way. I don't know what way that is. I, don't, I, I know some of, some of you some ways. I'm not going to get into the details, but I'm just going to be blunt to that degree. You have to change. I have to change, just as Peter did. And my question today is, do you come to church with that expectation? You know, we we come to church with several different expectations. We come eager to sing at the end, glory be to God the Father, right? We come eager to sing that, that closing song. We come hoping that the sermon will be about something that our children need to hear often, right? That we want our kids to hear, hey, you need to hear this. We come prepared to pray. We come prepared to give. All these things are good. But do you come to church expecting God to show you how you need to change? Change. 
how you need to change your thinking or your living. That's the question here uh, for Peter and for Cornelius. Uh, Notice again, Peter is convinced he is ready. God told me to come to you. Uh, I'm not to raise objections about you being Gentiles. I came anyway. I've changed my mind about that because God told me to. So what needs doing? And that's, that's verse 29. I find it fascinating. I asked then why you sent for me. It, it seems kind of obvious to me. It's like, you're, you're, a, and you're an apostle. You're supposed to be preaching the gospel, isn't that? But, but he asked them. So Cornelius retells his story, verse 30 to 32. He thanks Peter for coming. Verse 33, he says, we are all present before God. Here's the main way we see Cornelius' receptive and expectant posture. He is aware that God is in the room. We're all here. His closest friends, his relatives, the apostle Peter. But he says, we're all here in the presence of God. I want to pause and focus on that. Our culture is, is waning spiritually. We're in decline. And what that means is that we as a people, especially even in the church, we have a dimmer awareness of the presence of Almighty God. God in His person is not felt, not reverenced, not acknowledged. God's word and spirit just do not grab our attention. After devotions or after worship, we we quickly run off to play instead of considering our lives, praying fervently in response, being perplexed or or joyous at what what we've just read or heard. When we sit down to our Bibles or when we enter the sanctuary for the worship service, does this even enter our minds? It's the mark of revivals when you see them happen, like the, the brief revival at Asbury College uh, in the past few months. The, the, whole, the way you see the revival happen is people don't leave after the service. They, just, they stay there and they keep praying and singing and being convicted or perplexed or joyous. Like, they had a sense of the presence of God. That's what Cornelius says here. We are all here in the presence of God. I remember reading the, the book Anne of Green Gables a while back. Uh, Anne of Green Gables didn't have a sense of this at all either at the beginning when she comes to live with Marilla. I think it was her aunt. Uh, When Anne announces she doesn't pray, Marilla asks, well, don't you even know who God is, Anne? And Anne responds promptly and glibly. Oh, yes, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's straight out of the Westminster Confession. So Marilla is relieved that she knows her catechism, but Anne keeps on prattling on. I like that pretty well. There's some splendid uh, truth there, but it, it has such a role to it. It's like a big organ playing. 
You, you see children, Anne is playing around with catechisms and Bibles and prayers with no sense that she is present before God. So watch out for that. As your parents have you read your Bibles and pray, maybe have you do schoolwork with writing Bible verses or catechism questions. These aren't just school assignments. They're not just nice-sounding words. These, you're learning what is true and what is real. So keep that in mind. You're, you're before the Almighty God. If you're a reader at all, I would highly recommend in this regard uh, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Or uh, David Wells has written a few good books. Uh, no Place for Truth is a good place to start. Just, just to recover a sense of the, the majesty, the transcendence of God. We're all present before God to hear what he commands you to say. End of verse 33. So Cornelius has learned not to worship Peter. This is not a Peter-centered event any more than a church service is about the preacher. Right? If sermons are marching orders... Uh, then the pastor is only the page, the messenger. He's not the general. Right? I'm just carrying the paper, the message, from the general to his colonels. Right? And you colonels, you have to listen to me, the page, even though you outrank me, because I'm carrying the general's word. <laughs> it's it's kind of like that. Right? God is here, and he's speaking. John Stott, he says in his commentary here, no preacher could ask for a more attentive audience than here in Cornelius' house. He's got, Cornelius has said, we're all here, we want to hear what you have to say. And that's how we gather as, as the church, too. Well, Peter preaches, the Spirit falls, you have the baptism, that's the next dozen verses or so. Peter first talks about having no partiality. Uh, Cornelius being a Roman doesn't keep God from accepting him. Uh, the Jews as the elect people of God uh, does, not, does not exclude others, it turns out. And there's something to think about there. The, the doctrine of election, of predestination, is a precious truth. Uh, I believe there's great spiritual benefit in pondering that God chose you for salvation, that you are his elect that he chose you before you chose him. But there's a bad way to go with that truth, a way to abuse it, to distort it. Uh, we need to fight the tendency to think that you are elect, and so others aren't, and so you can safely ignore them. And that's what uh, Reformed people sometimes do, the whole frozen chosen idea, right? God surely hasn't chosen people different from us to be his, no, God chooses all kinds of people from every nation. Heidelberg 54 puts it beautifully. The Son of God gathers, protects, and preserves for himself out of the entire human race, a community chosen for eternal life. We're part of one worldwide huge number. That, that there's the old phrase from back in the 90s or so that we all hate. It's something like the New World Order, right? There's this... Yikes, this globalization, this whatever that, you know, World Economic Forum, whatever that is taken today. Well, forget that, but keep the name. God, has, God is creating a new world order called the church. It's a new thing. It's a global thing. All nations gathered together. 
the, the confusion, the separation of Babel undone. And we're brought together in unity. We'll come back to the unity later. That while the same message is preached to Jews as well as to Gentiles. Uh, verse 36. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, coming judgment. That's the essence of what Peter says. We need faith in him. We need repentance from our sins. Uh, this is the basic content of the Apostles' Creed. You have a good Trinitarian witness here. God anointed Jesus with the Spirit. That's, that's great. Gentiles especially need a theology lesson in who God is. Because, you know, Cornelius, as the good Roman, has probably been steeped in thinking about Mars and, and um, Jupiter and, and so on. No, it's, it's God the Father anointing Jesus with the Spirit. Death and resurrection of Christ are attested to. Uh, note that it's interesting, seeing him eat and drink after he rose, Peter says, that was key. That's how they were convinced Jesus wasn't a ghost, right? After seeing him die. So uh, Peter is uh, giving some personal experience here uh, along with the, the basic gospel message. Uh, Jesus is going to judge all people. That's fascinating that he emphasizes that. Uh, let's see, that's verse 42. He commanded us to preach, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be judge of the living and the dead, which we say every week in the Apostles' Creed, right? So uh, judgment seems to get a bit more emphasis when talking with Gentiles in the Bible. And I think that's because their culture was much like ours, uh, full of doubt whether any God exists at all, not really expecting any God to judge us at the end of our lives. They had stories and they had a heritage of, of Zeus and other gods judging men, but it it's all seemed rather capricious and frivolous. Is that really going to happen? And so they have kind of this category for thinking about it. And so Peter just... and. God, the, the Spirit inspiring Peter, uh, fills that uh, thought hole <laughs> with the truth that Jesus is the one who's going to judge. And the content of the preaching is the person, the work of Christ. And remember, Christ, we, we say the name Christ a lot. Christ Church, our name is Christ Church. But don't forget what Christ is. Christ is not a name. Christ is a title, right? And Peter says it in two ways in this passage. First, and there are two A's, they're very close words. One is anointed, uh, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, verse 38. And then, down in verse 42, he says, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge. Jesus is anointed and he is the one appointed. Both of those. And the word that I like to use for this, at least today, <laughs> and I think this applies to, to um, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, is this word, officer. Jesus is the officer of God the Father. That's what, that, that's what Christ means. Christ, the, God, the Father's Christ is the Father's officer, the one he, that he sets apart to do a job, right? It's like a sheriff has officers, deputies. It's the same kind of idea. 
And I think Peter's doing this, or the Spirit, is doing this on purpose because a Roman centurion understands perfectly what an officer is. He spends his whole day with his officers giving them jobs. Okay, you're my officer, you go do that. You're my officer, you go do that. This would perfectly help Cornelius understand who God the Father and God the Son are and what they've done. Jesus is the anointed the appointed of God. He's God's officer. And, of course, his officer to do what? Verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The result of what Jesus does is remission or forgiveness. Believing this is all true brings forgiveness of sin, regardless of nationality, of tradition, whatever. The result is the spirit falls while still speaking, it says. And, and I find that interesting. It's, it's like as, Jesus, as Peter says the words, receives forgiveness of sins, the spirit falls at the same time. This is another way of saying that they respond to, to believe what Peter says about Jesus. And the Jews, verse 45, they're amazed that the spirit is given. Again, we don't understand the amazement. Of course, God's full blessing is on anyone who believes in Christ, we think. But this had never happened before. You had isolated instances of Gentiles in the Old Testament coming to God. Ruth, the Moabite, Uriah, the Hittite. You have examples. But not as a whole pattern of this truth of God is going to every nation and to everyone. So, in the Old Testament, uh, there's a distinction between Jew and Gentile. And the church in Acts, so far, assumed everything in the Old Testament continued to apply. So, yeah, we'll be Christ's witnesses to the Gentiles, sure. Some might even believe. But probably the Spirit will be reserved for the children of Abraham. That's the general kind of thinking of the early uh, Jewish church uh, before Acts chapter 10. We even read it in Isaiah 44. Verse 3, I'll pour out my spirit on you sons of Jacob. See, they are God's special people, it says. But no, Isaiah 49, that's all changed. It's not enough that, you're, that my Messiah uh, restore the sons of Jacob. I'll also have him be a light to the Gentiles. So God deals with us through Christ. Now, verse 46, they could tell the Holy Spirit fell because they spoke in tongues and they, and they spoke back the true gospel that they were believing. That's an interesting verse. Peter, later in uh, chapter 11, verse 15, he says uh, to the church in Jerusalem, he says, it reminded me of how it started when the Spirit came upon us at the first, he says, which means Pentecost, Acts 2, right? It's like, what happened in Cornelius' house reminded me of Acts 2, Pentecost, when the Spirit came. Which, to my mind, means they're speaking in tongues, which it outright says, but, but it also tells me how they're speaking in tongues. It's not the whole cacophony kind of thing that we think of today. The speaking in tongues in Acts 2 is they're speaking in our language so that we can understand them. So... So I'm not exactly sure what the miracle here is, what the speaking in tongues, but probably something like Roman centurions are speaking Hebrew or Aramaic or some language that, don't, that Peter and the Jews know 
that they wouldn't know. Something like that. Some kind of uh, miracle like Acts chapter 2. It's fascinating. God's showing, what, what's happening there is that God is showing the unity of believers. Right? His spirit is, again, undoing the division of Babel, gathering the church together. They've got all kinds of divisions, cultural, social, between Peter and Cornelius. And the spirit falls and undoes all of that. Somehow, through the speaking in tongues, the spirit makes the connection where custom or culture or language would separate. That's really important for us to think about as the church. Well, Peter baptizes them, verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these? Uh, Since God has baptized them with the Spirit, the church should not keep from baptizing them with water. Right. Uh, The assumption here is that the Spirit and baptism were for circumcised Jews, like John the Baptist dealt with. He was a minister mainly to Jews and baptizing Jews. Peter skips that. Nope, baptism is for anyone. And again, the border has been crossed. The Spirit has made the, the, the crossover. The Spirit falls on the Gentiles. Well, if the Spirit falls on the Gentiles, then baptism should be given to the Gentiles too, is the point. So circumcision isn't a dividing line anymore. This gets hotly disputed in a few chapters. Uh, but the point for us, I would say, is this. That no pastor, no parent should stand in the way of baptizing a person who professes their faith credibly in Christ. This, this happens a, a lot. I saw it at, in college. I saw it other places. And people were turned off to the church for decades because of it, because they, they wouldn't let them come and profess their faith and take communion until they were 19 years old to make sure that they really got it. Right? That's not what we ought to be doing. So Peter baptizes them. Uh, verse 48, the sacraments of baptism and communion are given to the church to administer. Peter has the authority here to command them to be baptized. Of course, Peter is simply following the movement of the Spirit. Right? You, you notice that? You can, you can focus on the apostles' authority here, or, or church authority here, or you can say, you know what, the church leaders may need to make sure that they're following the Spirit themselves. <laughs> Both are true. So, uh, elders have rules to follow. They are mere ministers. The keys of the kingdom are not theirs. They are stewards. But it's the elders who are the stewards. Not any individual. Not any uh, parents. Just had an ordination uh, committee exam and question. It, it came up once again. Um, going off script here. The, what do you do as a pastor if you notice that uh, Johnny nine-year-old doesn't take communion uh, in church one Sunday and you ask dad about it and dad says yeah he just had such a bad temper tantrum on the way to church that I decided he's not taking communion well is that, is that dad's role or not and, and what do you do in that situation that, that's, those are some th- good things to think about uh, we can talk about that more later that's off script um Okay, chapter 11 is a lot of repeat, right? Peter gets back to Jerusalem. There's objection. Peter has truly crossed the line uh, and the line of circumcision, which God gave to Abraham as the sign of the covenant. So what is Peter doing baptizing foreigners outside into the church? 
and we'll look at that more in coming weeks, but the application, I think, is to expect some opposition and some rejection when we identify with Christ, even in the church. Say, hey, you're not supposed to do that. I, back in the, my previous denominational life, uh, the, the liberal wing used verse 47 uh, as a justification for um, homosexuality being accepted in the church. In some strange fashion, they said, well, look at verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Shouldn't we accept the practicing homosexual into the church? Because God has accepted them just as he's accepted us. It's a total abuse of the, of the verse. So there, there's going to be rejection. There's going to be opposition when we identify with Christ. Uh, Luke, in verse 4 through 17 of this uh, chapter 11, he retells the whole thing. <laughs> and he does this for emphasis, right? This is epic, what is happening here. Cannot underestimate it. We can eat unclean food. We can go into a pagan's house when we're bringing the gospel to the world. And not only may we, sometimes we must to keep ourselves from, to keep, uh, to be obeying the Great Commission. Uh, one of you lately, uh, I forget in the last few months, uh, told me about uh, meeting some friends uh, for dinner at, a, at the casino somewhere. And you know, it was important that, that you meet with, with, with them. And I, I, I don't think I told you at the time, I probably played it cool, but I was shocked. I, I was raised, you never set foot in a casino. That's just not something you do. But if, you're, but if your friends who need to know more about the Lord are going to be at the casino and they will meet you for dinner there, well, th- that's kind of what Peter is doing here, going to Cornelius' house. It's like, he, it's like in his mind, he's going to the casino. It's like, I don't know if I should do that. But God says, no, go. Meet with them. That's what Peter's doing, and he's defending this to the church, to, to all those who were also raised to say, never go into a casino, right? He's like, they're there. God told me to. God told us to go and uh, preach the gospel to all the nations. So that's what he does. And he also says uh, in verse 14, this is something that he points out. Uh, he will declare a message to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. I just wanted to f- focus on that for 30 seconds. It, that's God intending to work the same way in the New Testament as he did in the Old, with household units, right? Not just individuals. Abraham is commanded to circumcise and to disciple his family. Cornelius' household is evangelized, baptized, discipled as a family. Not only does God deal with the two the same way, but the one causes the other in God's economy. God's promise to Abraham leads to Cornelius' salvation. Right? God says to Abraham, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, here's one of those families, Cornelius. And sitting here in front of me is another dozen or so saved households. God is keeping his promise to Abraham. 
and he does it through Christ. Well, uh, let's move to application here. You can read Peter's sermon of of 200 words here in our text. It's about 200 words, that's it. Uh, Not a whole long thing. Uh, You can believe you have the Spirit, and and you can not even know where Israel is on a map. (laughs) And you're a believer. There's there's no connection anymore. Uh, I better not say it that way. There's... You don't need to have the same kind of connection to Israel. Now, as we grow in the faith, we need to learn about the tree that we're grafted into. But the only thing God requires for his forgiveness is trust in the Lord Jesus. Okay, some application. First, uh, the unity of different believers, right? We keep making distinctions in the church that God doesn't allow. And Peter falls back into that, withdrawing from Gentiles at Antioch when Jews come to visit. And Paul confronts him. Galatians 2, Paul talks about that. We can't let the circumcision party divide the church. And this shows up in all kinds of ways. It's not just about circumcision. Pick any issue, and this is important. I've blogged recently, uh, going off script again, uh, about this uh, politically these days. I think the conservative church, churches like ours today, we're not so tempted to be divided by COVID anymore. We've kind of sorted things out about that. But we might be tempted to be divided about politics and about the upcoming election and if the last election was stolen and all those kinds of issues. Those kind of things can can divide us and we ought not let that be. Uh, Missionaries have had problems with this for centuries. Uh, people take on Western customs and they think they're Christians, right? Or sometimes the missionaries themselves half believe it just because they uh, are taking on Western customs. You know, you, you really need to become a Jew to be a Christian. That was the circumcision party's argument. You really need to become an American. You really need to adopt American ideals to be a Christian. That would be another way to come at this. Here's a test for you. Can a true Christian today in Poland or in China just kind of shrug at America or even be like, I really don't like America, and be a true Christian? The answer is yes. That's important. So you can apply this to nations in that way. God shows no partiality or favoritism to any one nation. Now, I'm not saying one nation is as good as another. I'm not saying North Korea is the moral equivalent of America. That's not the point. I'm saying Christians, uh, I'm saying Americans are quicker to be hard on North Korean sins than on American sins, right? I'm saying God loves North Korean believers as much as American ones. That North Korea will become the kingdom of Christ as much as America will. That might be kind of hard for us to imagine and to believe, but it's true. Right? Going back to Acts, Cornelius the Roman is just as forgiven by God in Christ as Peter, James, and John. I spoke last week of of bad patriarchy. Uh, Here's another danger to the unity of believers. If we identify the church so strongly by father or family then we can give the idea that single people are less favored by God or that women and children need to go through a husband or a father to have access to God. 
right? Those are all other ways that uh, attack the unity of different believers. No, there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So take an interest in those who are different. Learn from them. Maybe you'll learn things from those different in the faith. We need to make adjustments for how people think today. Notice uh, Peter speaking to Cornelius. He effectively communicates who Jesus is without changing the message. Uh, Peter's sermon to Cornelius is quite different from Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, right? Stephen's speech is longer for one thing. (laughs) Religious leaders are used to longer speeches than military officers, I would say. And Peter sees that too. Uh, The comedian George Burns once said that sermons should have a, a good beginning and a good ending and the two should be as close together as possible. which I'm not doing so well at today. But anyway, when the man on the street wants to hear about Christianity, you've maybe got Twitter length attention, maybe Facebook status, maybe a short blog post, right? It's interesting how long Peter's sermon is here. It's verse 34 to 43. It's five to nine verses. That's all he says. So make it count. It's not the time probably to talk about modesty or the roles of men and women or reform theology or homeschooling or politics or education or homosexuality or abortion. All those things are important, but they flow from the gospel. They're not the gospel itself. Jesus is God's officer who has reconciled us to him. That's the message. So, he considers his audience. Um, Skipping a bit in my notes. The power of the gospel to convert. Note that in the last three chapters or so in Acts, that's what we've seen. Saul of Tarsus is converted. The, the, The prime... Pharisee of Pharisees, Jew, who's persecuting the church. He's converted, and then a Roman centurion, Cornelius. The two most unlikely, strong-willed type of people. God's power to convert. If God wants to change your heart, God will change your heart. He gives us the spirit. Uh, Second to last, Cornelius as patriarch. Notice this is his household. He gathers his house. His household is baptized. Uh, I, I would just um, speak to you men a moment and a bit flatter your ego and, and say, imagine yourself as Cornelius, right? Um, a Roman centurion, the Italian cohort. He, he's got a, a high position job. He's seasoned. He's at the peak of his career. He's got a ton of influence. Imagine yourself as that guy. And what happens to him? God comes to him and says, you need to send for Peter down in Joppa, living with a tanner. (laughs) And he's going to tell you a message I need you to hear. God basically brings into Cornelius' life 
this high-powered individual, a man that he needs to see as a spiritual father. We as, as um, men, as fathers, as those, any of us who see ourselves as spiritually mature, we need spiritual fathers and mothers and mentors. And that's what God does with Cornelius. He brings Peter into his life. And Cornelius' household is also mentioned rather prominently because Cornelius needs to become a father in the faith too. That's critical. That's critical in our spiritual journey. So cultivate those spiritual mentors and be fathering spiritually those in your charge. Lastly, God fully favors you. The basic gospel message once again. You profess faith in the Lord, you believe God is there, that you have sinned against him, that Jesus is the sacrifice who can make you right with God. We have peace with God. God is for you, not against you, as he finds you in his son Jesus. You're going to fight against sin until your dying day. But on the day that you die, on the day that you die, you're going to sin in some way. And God doesn't care because he sees you in Christ. Those sins are paid for by his son, so God doesn't care about them anymore. So, assuming we're true Christians with real faith in Christ, God has determined to throw away and forget your record of sins. He doesn't care, and he doesn't want to care. And that's why he sent Jesus, so he could favor you regardless of your sins. I think I'll stop there today. God shows his full favor to Gentiles in Christ. No exceptions, no distinctions. You are fully forgiven in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that you have shown us that whatever our differences from other people, from uh, whatever our uh, wanderings from your law and your will, Lord, as we uh, return to you, as we uh, confess our sins, as we believe in your Son, Jesus, you give us full remission. Help us, Heavenly Father, to believe this and to live in the light of this truth. We thank you and we pray in the name of Jesus and every living word and we sing. Exhortation from Matthew chapter 26. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11 are usually used at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This is why I say the same words that Jesus said every week. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the words I just read, Jesus next says, 
this my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. And that same phrase, remission of sins, it's the same phrase Peter preaches to Cornelius' house. That's when the Spirit falls. We know we have remission of sins because we are in God's house, we are at Christ's table, we are eating the food that he gave us. We know that we have remission of sins because we believe what Peter preached, like Cornelius did. We believe in one baptism for the remission of sins, we say in the Apostles' Creed. Remission simply means sent away or released in the Bible. Our sins don't cling to us because we cling to Christ. The price, the cost of this remission, this forgiveness, was high. God can only send our sins away from us by sending Jesus away from Him. He's the scapegoat sent away into the wilderness. The wages of sin require not just death. Jesus descends into the hell of being sent away from the Father. So God sends us the Spirit and sends our sins away from us. He sends for us to come to Him. So let us come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.